This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. It's 5.08. You're listening to the Evening Edition with Sharmila and Sharad. So first up this hour, heroes of the canine kind, search and rescue dogs. So this actually, um, a number of things happened last year, which put search and rescue dogs, who are often quite underappreciated in how big a role they serve, um, in the spotlight, right? So firstly, of course, we had the, uh, quite tragically, the, the Batankali landslide. Uh, but that really highlighted the importance of having these canine rescuers as part of our search and rescue teams. And then um, on the 19th of September last year, Blake, uh, the canine sniffer, as well as a, a key member of the search and rescue team for the Batankali landslide, was euthanized. Um, because Blake had advanced stage 4 lymphoma. Um, and so that also ended up, um, I suppose, creating a lot of conversation around the role of search and rescue dogs. Now, in the case of Blake, um, he had served in several high-profile search and rescue missions, including the drowning victims at Tol Batu 13 in uh, Lorong 16, Kampong Kenangan, Selangor, um, the water search and rescue near Yan Kada, as well as the uh, scan location of trapped victims at Kampong Temelo in Kara. Um, and Blake was a seven-year-old English Springer Spaniel who was brought in from the UK, had been a member of the team since 2017. Yeah, so, uh, you know, the, the spotlight on dogs, I think, uh, was quite interesting because I think in a sense... It, it, the, the the support for the unit, I think, during these uh, times of crisis was kind of across the board, right? Um, in a country where dogs are considered haram by, by some segments of the community and then others who keep them as pets and, you know, this is a source of all kinds of neighborhood disputes sometimes. But I think there was a consensus on the, the value of the dogs during this crisis and I think also the kind of attachment that people develop for the dogs, right? And the profession relationships that the handlers and the dogs seem to develop that express itself in all kinds of ways. Uh, I think it's we saw have seen increasingly in social media uh, an attempt to reach out uh, to um, you know people to kind of get them to understand what dogs are, right? Because for some Dogs are menacing. Dogs are a source of uh, problems. They, uh, especially if they're wild and feral, but even when they're uh, they're domesticated as well. I I think um, actually understanding um, what dogs are, the purpose they can serve, but also I think highlighting these sorts of achievements really does go a long way towards removing, as you said, in, in some segments, um, fear or a, a, an aversion to dogs. And I think in general also, these sorts of heartwarming stories are one of those things that tend to bring many people together, even if you're not necessarily a dog lover yourself. Um, I know that we did a whole um, a, a whole uh, social media series on um, posts on Instagram about the search and rescue dogs, which did really well and had just lovely comments. When Blake uh, was euthanized, we saw millions of Malaysians actually taking to social media to pour tributes, calling him a hero. Um, so what we're going to do after this is to hear from um, members of the uh, search and rescue team. We're going to be speaking with Aaron Goh, who is membership lead, and Mohammad Mogzani, who is mission-ready leader. Uh, but in the meantime, we want to hear from you as well. Do you have stories of when your dog was a hero.
you can call double seven double three two nine hundred. Send us a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Burning for more. BFM eighty nine point nine. The Business Station. It is 5.13. You're listening to the Evening Edition with Sharmila and Sharad. And we are um, paying tribute, really, to search and rescue dogs, canine heroes. Um, And we want to hear from you. Do you have stories of when your dog was a hero? Hero of an everyday kind is fine as well. You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. Send us a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Joining us now on the line is Aaron Goh, membership lead, and Mohammad Mukzani, mission ready leader, both from the Search and Rescue Dog Malaysia team. Aaron, Mohammad, good to have you with us. So, tell us how you first became interested in training search and rescue dogs and are getting involved with this. Mohammad, maybe you can start. Uh, okay, um, I'll go first. Um, for me, I joined uh, Search and Rescue Dogs about two years ago. Uh, what what sparked my interest to do Search and Rescue is um, having a dog, uh, from my view, is if you have a dog, you need a purpose for the dog. You cannot just have a dog for the sake of, of having a pet. Um, especially when you get a working dog, Mm, you need an outlet for the dog. So I was looking for an outlet for my dog to to uh, work. So search and rescue uh, was one of the choices that I, I wanted to do. And for me, helping the community and saving lives is also another great thing to do with your dog. So that's, that's the reason why I joined up. Mine was a bit different. Um, my dog was a Labrador. So she's pretty active. And so um, in... Normally, we go to parks and we will approach to say that we have an active dog and wonder if we would consider uh, some activities of a search and rescue nature. So we, we attended some sessions and uh, the team evaluated and find that the dog was suitable. And that's how I joined right, the, the team. So it's part of the, the activities that we could provide for the dogs itself. Uh, and also at the same time that we could also serve the country. In, in delivering, you know, volunteer services. So tell us, who are the dogs in the team right now? Uh, okay, so for now, we have uh, roughly about nine to ten dogs in training. Uh, we also have three deployable dogs at the current moment. So um, what we do and what we specialize in is actually, a, it's called live fine. So we specialize in life finds. We do not do any cadaver work. So cadaver work means you find uh, people who are deceased. So a lot of missing persons cases, um, we specialize in that. And Aaron, how are the dogs chosen? Are there specific characteristics that you look for? As a club, um, we have a few channels of uh, uh, people reaching out to us. Um, We are on Facebook, right? as a Sardoc Malaysia and uh, sometimes we also have uh, visibility coming from dog training groups and uh, people who are interested and at the same time we also have members our members looking out for dogs that may be suitable right so for any party that is keen uh, they will contact us and we will go through a process of uh, assessment and um, we go through a process of looking at two things number one is actually we look at the dogs and the person who owns the dog is a dog handler, right? And so that's the first part. 
And at the same time, we also look at the person who handled the dog, the handler itself, and whether the person is also suitable. So our normal process when a person contacts us is that we will go through a few sessions of introducing the person um, into the activities that we are doing. So we invited them for our training and they would engage with our team members. So YC versa, we have that person accessing what we do and find out whether the activity is suitable and also the team also to, to access whether the person is suitable. Now going through the process once we determine the person is suitable, then we would invite the person to bring the dogs and that goes to the training team and the training team would access the dog for suitability. Now the dog could be accessed for a lot of uh, character. Number one, if the dog is friendly and the dog is driven, right? We are not selective to say the dog has to be a pedigree, we are open to all. We have uh, serving dogs who are non-pedigree as well. So it's so much more as a character. So if you find that the dog and the person is suitable to the team, then we invite them to participate and they, they will become a member of the society. And from there, they will undergo uh, a training process. Just following up on what Erin said, um, when the training team chooses a dog, so the criteria for the dogs that we actually look for, I won't go into too technical, but I will explain two things. One of the major things that we look for is the dog has to be properly socialized. Meaning socialized is that the dog is um, desensitized to a lot of things. Uh, the dog has, like what Aaron said, the dog has to be friendly because the nature of the work is that the dog is looking for someone. When you, when you want a dog to look for someone, uh, you want the end product to be friendly. You don't want the end product to be fierce or aggressive. If the dog does a search and finds a victim. If the dog is aggressive, the dog might do something to the victim. The other one that we're looking for is we call it hunt drive or prey drive. So hunt drive is the ability for the dog or the the dog wants to search, to hunt. So that's that's initially what they're doing. They are hunting for a victim. So they follow the scent trail. So that's another thing that we look for. The way we test a dog for hunt drive is... Um, for example, you stand, you stand with your dog, you throw the ball. This is test number one. You throw the ball in the field, the dog sees the ball and that the dog will run to the ball and get the ball. The second test is you turn the dog around. The dog doesn't see the ball. So you throw the ball and then you release the dog. So the dog has to search for the ball using its nose. That's how, that's how you do it. And then the third final test is you turn around, you spin the dog three or four times, you throw the ball. Basically, you're disorientating the dog. You throw the ball and then you see how long does the dog take to search for the ball. That's, that's one of the tests that we do. Mohammed, uh, we understand that different SAR dogs have uh, different scopes, job scopes and specialties, as you mentioned earlier. How is this determined? Um, we have two different, well, we have two different, not styles, we have two different jobs for the dog. So one of it is called area search or area live search. So uh, these dogs are trained to search a, an area, for example, a jungle or uh, uh, any area, any open area. And then another one we have, which is what we call USAR, which is urban search and rescue. So urban search and rescue is, we focus a lot on um, abandoned buildings or buildings that have collapsed. 
So the type of dog that is required for both jobs is if it's ideal for an urban search and rescue dog to be small and compact because they are able to go through all the cracks and crevices of the building. But they also do, they don't do quite well as bigger dogs for area search because area search is a bigger space. So smaller dogs might not have the stamina or the the ability to jump over a log or cross a river or anything like that. But in our case, we do have dogs that have dual purpose, so they do both. Yeah. And what standards do these SAR dogs uh, in Malaysia, SAR dogs Malaysia follow or adhere to? We follow um, a very strict uh, examination or certification. So the certification comes from Europe. It's called IRO, which is which stands for International Rescue Organization. So in the International Rescue Organizations, there there are examinations specific for search and rescue dogs. So for us, we we take the certification of area search and urban search and rescue, which is what I explained just now. So we follow to their standard, and their standard is internationally recognized. So dogs need to connect and find trust with human beings, I understand that. What steps do you take to gain this sense of trust? How important is this in your job? So because of the nature of our society and our association, um, we are a 100% volunteer-based association. So um, the dogs that we have actually don't belong to the club or they don't belong to uh, APM, which is uh, they don't belong to the Civil Defence of Malaysia. They belong to the owners that actually join the society. So bonding-wise, because the dog stays with the owner, the dogs, the dog, you feed the or you feed the dog, you train the dog, you you interact with the dog on a daily basis. That's where the bonding comes in. So the longer you spend time with the dog, uh, the stronger the bond is. And also when you do training, especially obedience training, when you do obedience training, that's when you build the trust and the bond with the dog. Yeah. And Aaron, I'm curious, uh, SAR dogs are usually deployed uh, during crises or in high stress situations. Could you tell us about some of these missions and how the dogs helped? I think just to share a little bit about how do we get invited or participated in uh, those missions. Um, we we work together with uh, APM or the Civil Defence and uh, we have an MOU with them and we are part of their uh, search and rescue unit in, in the sense that we provide uh, canine search dog. Right. So as and when the APM has a mission that requires the service, then they will call us. Then we will we will join them right, and uh, we deploy. Now, Independently, without the APM, then we may not be able to allow to go into any disaster area because those areas are regulated and controlled, right? So we, we are part of the APM team, right? And so in that sense also, from anyone who is serving in a mission-ready serving uh, member, they also need to be a member of the APM. Otherwise, they would not be able allowed to, to participate, right? So we have, um, over the years, we have served in some, a few uh, key search and rescue missions. One was, uh, before COVID, I think we, we participated in one search of a foreign girl in Dusun, in Greece and Milan. We were also at the Batangkali landslide incident. Could you help us understand some of the risks associated with these missions? What safeguards are there to protect the dogs when they're out in the field? 
Okay. Um, what we do is um, before we actually send the dogs in, um, we will have to uh, get a briefing from the command center. Usually, the command center is the army. They usually handle all the the um, how do you say all the coordination of the search. So. Um, how we safeguard the dogs is that before we actually go into the disaster spot, um, we will have to look at the topography of the place. Um, what is the scale of the disaster? If there is any uh, electrical supply to the ground, if if all these safety checks, we do have safety checks before we deploy the dogs. And also during our searches, on our searches, the dogs wear a specialized GPS collar that we can have live monitoring on our handheld unit so we can actually see where the dogs are and where the dogs go because the nature of our search is we don't do on-lead searches, we do off-lead searches. So the dogs actually run by themselves, they search by themselves. And eventually when they do find the victim, um, what they will do is they will give an indication. So majority of our dogs, their indication is barking. So they will they are trained to be at least one meter away from the victim and they will bark until the handler arrives. Um, but as for safety-wise, um, we also conduct our searches. Um, for example, one parcel or one sector per dog is only allowed to search for 20 minutes. So after they've searched for 20 minutes, we will give them 45, 45 minutes to an hour's break for them to recuperate, for them to drink, for them to, to regain their energy, and then we deploy them again. But it's based on the dog handler and the dog handler's experience to assess the dog if the dog is okay to do another sector. So that's, that's some of the safety guidelines that, that we follow. And what happens after a successful mission? Uh, how are the dogs rewarded? So... How we reward the dogs in training is when the dog uh, finds the victim, what the dog will do is the dog will indicate and then after the dog indicates, then they will get a reward. Some dogs, um, we use food as a reward or we can use uh, toys, for example, balls or a tug toy, depending on the dog, uh, what they like. So, like, for example, food, what we call is food drive. Another one, if it's a toy, we call them toy drive or prey drive. So... We reward them that way. But usually after a search, uh, what we will do is um, the dogs will get a medical examination. Okay, The dog will be assessed after the search. We'll take them to the vet. They will get assessed. Or, or the owners or the handlers will do an on-site assessment. Um, after that, usually they will get time off from training. So they get time off from training. They will recuperate and, and, and all that. Usually we'll give them a, a week or about two weeks. Any final thoughts for us? Yeah, as a club, we, we continue to grow and we have uh, dogs that have been serving for a few years and who may be retiring soon and we'll always have a funnel to, to bring more dogs to serve. So we also want to reach out and, and see if people who are keen to participate to, to contact us uh, in our Facebook, Sar Dogs Malaysia, either as a dog handler or even non-dog handler to, to support the team. I think we, we, we want to reach out and it's a spirit of serving the country and a spirit of volunteerism and, and we're passionate about it to reach out to us. Aaron Mohammad, thanks for speaking with us today. That was Aaron Goh, and uh, that was Aaron Goh, membership lead, and Mohammad Mugzani, um, mission ready leader from SAR, uh, from Search and Rescue Dogs Malaysia. Uh, we've been talking about Search and Rescue Dogs, and essentially, 
dogs who are heroes. But we want to hear from you as well. Do you have stories of when your dog was a hero? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. Send us a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Breathe freely, Malaysians. BFM eighty nine point nine. The business station. It's 5.38. You're listening to the Evening Edition with Sharmila and Sharad. And we've been talking about search and rescue dogs. Um, and uh, we heard from members of the Search and Rescue Dogs Malaysia team. Uh, they're a volunteer team. And uh, essentially, they have dogs that have helped with a number of different uh, disasters and uh, disaster missions, including the Batangkali landslide. Um, and we also talked about Blake, who was euthanized last year, but was a key member of the Search and Rescue Mission at Batangkali, um, which got us talking about canine heroes. And that's what we want to hear from you about. Do you have stories of when your dog was a hero? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. So Ron says, Our spaniel Isabel kept many a cobra out of our house, had her eyes spat at and temporarily blinded several times, but it never deterred her from protecting the house. Ron, um, that's actually quite a... Well, it's, it's firstly a little terrifying, but it is quite a lovely story. And this is something I think many people who have dogs will attend to that um, you can rely on them often um, for not just companionship but for for actual safety indeed uh, Ron you uh, you know I think the way in which dogs uh, respond um, by their nature because of their DNA is in fact to be protective of the adopted family of their little tribe right there and uh, so there is definitely that uh, the other thing about Dogs and their interaction with wildlife, you know, the non-domesticated animals <laughs> of the world, um, is also quite instructive because, of course, dogs have that other DNA, which is their own ancestry through, you know, sort of be- becoming, going, going from wolf to dog, as it were, um, to kind of simplify things. But I think their ability to understand how to deal with the natural world means that they're a a tremendously useful companion for people who are interacting in those environments where you're constantly meeting with potentially uh, wildlife. Ron, your story also reminded me of um, our uh, our family dog who, who, who passed away uh, several years ago, but um, wasn't as heroic because it wasn't a snake, but used to keep rats away from the house, which we always appreciated. The thing that my mom didn't appreciate, though, was that he used to think that leaving the carcasses for her as a gift was a nice thing to do. (laughs) So every other morning she'd wake up and she'd find a dead rat right at the doorstep, presented to her. Um, That I think she could have done without. Uh, But otherwise, I'd like to think that's heroic. Um, He also um, collected mangoes for us. I thought that was heroic, too, although he ate half of them. Not quite so heroic. You know, I grew up with dogs and I understand all these impulses right around uh, the gift giving. Um, I, when I lived in Kalang uh, briefly in 1975, uh, the dogs often brought crows or crows found themselves uh, at our doorsteps. I mean, these were not crows that were alive, by the way. And uh, But I think it's a strange impulse that dogs have. Um, 
It's, it's, it's a leader it's a, of the pack thing, right? It's a leader of the pack. I yeah. mean, you become the leader of the yes. pack, right? I mean, this is the thing, right? So the, the the hierarchies are set and they want to please you all the time. And this is why dogs are so wonderful for the kind of unconditional love that they seem to, uh, you know, lavish upon their so-called own human owners. And, you know, which is kind of like, say, cats. I mean, I don't want to get into a cat and dog discussion, but you know what I mean. I mean, dogs are just so loving i mean you know uh that it, it, to a point where they kind they can be quite silly well speaking of silly tidj says unfortunately no we had a dog pasta love that name by the way we had a dog pasta felt like he was borderline suicidal jumping into oncoming traffic numerous times and our cat leo was constantly chasing centipedes scaring us more than anything else well they're not all heroes but they're certainly entertaining tidj <laughs> clearly um pasta what is pastas? You're going to have to get a dog whisperer, TIDJ, uh, to understand what's going on in a pasta's mind. He just likes, what's the word? Extreme sports. Extreme sports? I think pasta just likes living on the edge is what it is. <laughs> yeah, it could be, right? But um, yeah, I mean, it, I mean, I think the, the thing that all of us says, uh, if you had a dog in the in, you know, you grew up with one, you know that they all have their distinct personalities. Though, in many ways, dogs are dogs, right? And you can even think of personalities in terms of breeds. Certain mm. breeds have uh, certain personalities. Probably why they use the, those particular breeds in the search and rescue team. What I was curious about and what I've learned so much from that interview is that these are not the professionally trained dogs. I mean, not the dogs trained and who are kind of sold so they're not to the, the canine, canine unit, unit right? Yeah. So these are individuals who have dogs who've decided to put the dogs through train, training and presumably themselves as well in order to deal with those crisis situations. We have, well, firstly, Jessica saying my dog had caught and killed about eight rats. I completely identify with you, Jessica. Uh, but Cheryl actually bringing up um, another sort of heroic dog, right? Uh, in other parts of the world, dogs are being used as guide dogs for visually impaired people extensively. In Malaysia, there's only one registered guide dog. Dogs are also trained and used for people with anxiety and special needs. It's a pity why dogs are not acceptable to all Malaysians. Um, Cheryl, you know, I, I get what you're saying. I do think think that uh, in Malaysia, we're still quite a ways away from accepting fully the notion that dogs can be so useful for people, um, well, specifically with visual impairments, but also in many cases with other sorts of disabilities. Um, and I do hope that that's something that we've, we can move towards. And I understand that there are sensitivities and that there are cultural challenges in terms of public spaces and dogs, but I'm sure there are ways in which this can be negotiated, especially when we come to the table with the notion that this is helpful and indeed can actually significantly improve the lives of people with disabilities. Yeah, the the visually impaired issues is a huge one. Uh, but I think bringing up the question of anxiety and dogs uh, is is also important to kind of understand. I mean, I'm no expert. I don't know if you know about how dogs, especially as pets, uh, are very useful for people with anxiety. Why is it that that relationship can engender a sense of security in the human person? Um, 
and where that's explored enough, right? But I think that anyone who's ever had a dog would attest to the fact that the, you do develop this really strong bond with dogs. The dogs naturally want to connect. Maybe it's just an evolutionary thing. They've evolved with us over the last couple of thousand years to connect with us in a way that we we want as much as they want to have a bond and to maintain that, whether it's in, in giving care or in giving protection. Well, I think, I mean, of course, the emotional support animal has increasingly become well accepted in, in therapy and in mental health. And um, I, I'm not an expert, but I've read about, uh, for instance, how people on the spectrum uh, benefit greatly from having a trusted pet with them. I mean, dogs are certainly very popular in that regard. So, yeah, I, I do think that that's a conversation that we can we can um, have and probably should be having. We have a voice note that's come in. This is from Roberto. My dog, we call we call it Blondie. Um, it's it was not a hero per se, but it was extremely smart. Well, kind of a hero one time. I wanted to go back to my primary school, but uh, the fence was closed. So I, um, I I tried to sneak under the fence to go into the primary school. Uh, long and behold, I, my, my sweater got stuck in the fence and uh, my dog, Blondie, kind of let us know that the fence was open by going under the fence and kind of uh, pushed against the floor, released the fence and opened the fence. <laughs> so my sweater got released. Not really heroic thing, but oh, well, for a 10-year-old boy, probably it was nice to see your dog helping you came, coming out from a trouble. Roberto, thank you. I think Blondie sounds like a hero. I mean, if I were 10 years old, I would have thought that's pretty heroic. It, it, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. I mean, yeah. first, the dog's extremely intelligent, seem to know what to do in a crisis moment. Oh, look, you know, for some, for some of us who grew up on television series like Lassie uh, yeah. or, or The Littlest Hobo, I don't know if anybody remembers this. You must be like <laughs> a 312, about my age, to, to remember The Littlest Hobo. But these were television programs that had their central character, dogs, uh, and dogs doing heroic things like every day. Well, every episode, anyway. Lassie was the um, high achiever of the lot. <laughs> yes. um, but actually, my favorite pop culture dog was probably Timmy from The Famous Five. Um, I used to wish that I had a Timmy. I used to imagine I had a dog companion. But we want to hear from you as well. Do you have stories of when your dog was a hero? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. Send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.